homeschool expert is here to equip you to homeschool confidently with help from the experts. You can do this, and we are here to help. Visit homeschoolexpert.com for video and print resources. Helping you homeschool confidently is our host, Ann Crossman, and her guest expert for today's special broadcast. Hi, friend, and welcome to Homeschool Expert. I am so glad you're joining our conversation today with guest expert, Patty Shedder. Now, Patty has an extraordinary background, and so I'm going to go into it at length here because it really plays into our conversation today. Patty is the author of Homeschooling the Child with Autism, and she's also worked as a classroom teacher, a board-certified behavior analyst, and a SELPA program specialist for children with ASD since 1990. In addition to the book we're going to talk about today, Patty is the author of Learning the Ropes for Improved Executive Function and the Autism Program Development and Review Protocol. So she knows a lot about this subject. She currently works as a board-certified behavior analyst with the UC Davis Mind Institute and oversees the California Autism Professional Training and Information Network Project, which provides training, coaching, and resources to educators and families throughout California. Today, we're going to discuss homeschooling a child with autism. Patty, what a fabulous bio, and thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So let's start off by talking about your book. Um, I got it in the mail a few weeks ago and was so excited to have it as a resource. I can understand with your background why you would write a book on autism, but I would love to know more about the catalyst for bringing homeschooling into the picture, especially with a social disorder like autism, where some might assume the obvious choice would be keeping the autistic child in a social classroom setting. What led you to think that homeschooling could be a positive option for students with ASD? Well, um, thank you for asking that question. You know, actually, when we originally uh, set out to write the homeschooling book, um, I wasn't really sure exactly how I felt about it. I had been getting um, called in quite a bit by families who had made the choice to homeschool um, as a consultant to help support them with um, positive behavior support plans Mm -hmm. or dealing with issues of, you know, motivation and that sort of thing. Um, but there definitely had been kind of an uptick and in, in, in a, in a, an increase in the number of families who were making this choice. So, mm. um, you know, the, the need was definitely there and trying to connect families with each other and other resources um, started to become a lot of what I did in that role. Um, so we decided to write the book. Um, my colleague Candace Lighthall and I um, it decided to write the book to basically serve as a resource for this increasing number of families who are making this choice. Oh, interesting. And, and what, what year was that, Patty, that you were seeing, as you said, the uptick in people choosing to homeschool? So the book was published in 2009. Um, mm-hmm. We started doing the research for the book um, about a year prior to the publication date. So it, the, the, the swing was really starting to happen around 2007, mm-hmm. um, 2008, um, in terms of more families making that choice. Mm-hmm. That's great. Any reason that you can point to why families would be pushed? Was there something that changed in the world of autism that made them, I don't know, there was more accessibility or more advocacy or something shifted or maybe just some article? You know, I think that uh, charter schools started to become um, more readily available. And a lot of the charter schools in California, where I am, um, you know, do have a homeschool or a kind of a hybrid option where homeschooling Mm -hmm. is 
part of it. Um, so I think the availability and sort of the recognition that that was part of the continuum of options became more apparent. Um, but, you know, most of the families that we interviewed for the book and that, that I've had a history of working with uh, made the choice because they were just feeling like their child's needs weren't being met in mm-hmm. the public school sort of traditional brick and mortar setting. Mm-hmm. And they were looking for something a, a bit different um, to see if that would be a better fit for their child. That makes sense. So in the course of all your research, I would suspect you came across some peer reviewed research research that supports homeschooling students with ASD of some kind, either showing a neutral or advantageous, ter- advantageous reason to do so. Um, can you help me understand more of what that might look like in terms of research? Yeah, you know, when we did the the research for the book, there really wasn't a lot of peer-reviewed information about homeschooling children with autism specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, a nice body of research showing the positive impacts of homeschooling in general, and an emerging uh, body of research on homeschooling children with learning disabilities and ADHD, but not really a lot in terms of, um, of homeschooling children with autism. Mm-hmm. Um, But I will say that there is um, quite a a vast uh, pool of research showing that uh, parent-implemented interventions and parents as teachers um, is really effective. So, um, you know, that that evidence-based practice of parent-implemented interventions um, has a a, a rich, um, you know, research research body um, available that, you know, people can draw from and you know, one would assume that if a parent can be effective teaching things like self-help and adaptive skills and working on behavior and social skills, that working on some of those more traditional academic skills isn't that big of a leap. Um, mm. you know, it might take a little bit more support on the part of the parent and maybe getting access to some structured curriculum. Um, but, you know, parents can be incredibly effective teachers based on what the research says. That's encouraging to know because I think sometimes homeschooling, well, homeschooling by itself is intimidating for a lot of parents. But then when you throw in special learning needs such as autism, there's this feeling like I should have been educated in this specific mode of teaching in order to educate my child well. And if I hear what you're saying, it's actually the most important part is that you know your child well enough to, to adapt whatever the basic core curriculum is to your child's needs. Is that right? Absolutely. And no one knows their child better than their parent. And the intuition I think that most parents have about what is going to work for their child and what's needed uh, by their child, um, you know, that's, that's really, I think, the most important thing. Yeah. And so then as parents are thinking about this, what needs or challenges should they anticipate if they have an autistic child needing to start school or potentially even transitioning out of a traditional classroom situation if they aren't sure whether or not homeschooling is going to be a good fit? Well, let me start by talking a little bit about some of the challenges that um, lead parents to make the choice to homeschool. Yeah. Of traditional challenges that a child with autism might face in a, a brick and mortar kind of a classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, autism by nature is a, a disability that impacts um, socialization and communication. And yeah. school by nature is an incredibly social place um, with lots of demands, social and academic, coming at a child all at once. Um, and the opportunity to receive instruction in areas like social skills might happen through traditional speech therapy and that sort of thing one or two times a week. So it really is a pretty intense environment um, when you think about the, the communication and social challenges a child with autism might have. 
Um, the other thing that that can be a significant impact is the sensory um, sort of experience in a mm-hmm. traditional brick and mortar classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of children with autism experience high, high levels of sensory sensitivities and aren't maybe able to filter out some of the competing information or, or sounds or, or, you know, things going on um, in a classroom. And so it makes it hard for them to focus and really access the instruction that's taking place in that environment. Um, so, you know, with those challenges, um, the, the social and the sensory um, a lot of families, you know, feel like a, a, a more um, kind of quiet and controlled environment where things can be embedded more rather mm-hmm. than hot at a specific time of day when, you know, the therapist is available um, can work a little bit better. So um, making that transition, you know, from a traditional brick and mortar to a, more of a homeschool situation um, can be wonderful. Um, it yeah. can be it can relieve quite a lot of stress, I think, for a, a lot of families. But and for um, the student, especially, right? Absolutely. Because that's so stressful for them. I've I've had the opportunity to work with some autistic students in the past, and at least from what my experience was, is that to dissect the two learning needs into different categories. Right, you've got the academic on one side and the social on other was so much easier. And and the, the best thing I can think to compare it to is if I were trying to learn another language, let's say Russian. And I'm trying to learn calculus and I go into a class taught in Russian on calculus. I'm both going to be, have to study, I have to study Russian and calculus at the same time. And for some of the autistic kids I work with, social skills are a foreign language, how to read somebody's face, how to understand their tone of voice. If they say that sentence, I'm supposed to say this sentence. Otherwise they think I'm being mean, right? A lot of the communication strategies that non-autistics take for granted just don't come naturally. And so we were asking these students to basically learn two subjects at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so to pull them out, sort of de-stressed math, because now all I'm asking her to do is learn math, and then we will practice the social classroom format and functions and conversations at a different time. Mm-hmm. And and anyway, that's been my experience in working with students. So what you're saying is resonating with me, uh, you know, just from personal experience. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, the the elimination of having all of that coming at you at one time can really, um, you know, help the student and the the homeschool parent to be able to focus on, you know, kind of the, the core challenges and mm-hmm. things that are really um, needing more attention and individualizing that instruction. Um, that's a huge advantage of being able to, to homeschool. Um, some of the things that can be a challenge, though, you know, it, Kids learn that when they go to school, there's a certain set of expectations and demands that happen. And yes. when they come home, that's, you know, usually a place of peace and relaxation and not a high level of demands. And so when you're homeschooling, that changes up a little bit. And that right. can be a difficult transition um, for some students um, to now have to do schoolwork at home, which in their sort of compartmentalized way of thinking, it doesn't fit. Or to perceive their parents now as a teacher as well as a parent. It's, a right. shift. it's not yeah. that it's impossible. It just takes time to shift that way of thinking. Yeah, it does. And, you know, it's funny. One of the moms that we interviewed for our homeschooling books uh, pointed that out as a particular challenge for her child. And she said, what I did initially is I went and actually bought a hat that said teacher on it. <laughs> That's great. For me yep. to put my teacher hat on, I would literally put my teacher hat on and That's say, great. 
I'm now in the role of teacher, which means we're going to be working on, you know, academics. And so it just was a way of being able to, you know, kind of help with that, that difficult transition that her daughter That's was having. such a creative solution that, that actually plays off. I'm sure you've heard of the Mr. Rogers syndrome, but for those listening who may not have, there was this great sy- uh, syndrome they taught us in psychology classes back at Stanford where they'd studied Mr. Rogers. You know, I'm talking about Patty, where when he comes in the door and he changes out of his loafers and blazer into cardigan and sneakers. And it's this shift that's obvious to all the children and preschoolers watching that now he's here to play. And then he changes back out of the outfit at the end of the day to show now it has to go back to work. Uh, So visual shifts for our students who are autistic, um, homeschooling or tutoring otherwise. Yeah. What a creative mom with a teacher hat. That's such a great idea. Yeah. And so you're talking about um, then challenges. Are there other challenges that you see parents facing um, if they have an autistic child transitioning into homeschooling? Well, you know, I think it is a pretty significant sort of mind shift um, or perspective shift um, that has to happen also. Mm. Um, Homeschool doesn't have to be, you know, eight to three every day with math class taking place from eight to nine and recess taking place from nine to nine 30, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot more flexibility that can be built into designing a, a schedule and a structure for homeschooling. So I think for a lot of families, you know, just sort of thinking about how, how to structure the day in a way that is comfortable and natural and fits with their, you know, kind of rhythms and, and mm-hmm. patterns um, can be a real challenge. Um, I think a lot of people think they have to do homeschool just like brick and mortar school right? Um, and don't really allow themselves that permission to do things differently. Mm-hmm. That's an important lesson, I think, and an important um, shift that needs to happen in order for it to be really as successful as it can be. Yes, I completely agree. And so an example of a flexible structure, maybe being like a time ladder where you have a general guideline of time running down the side, but then just a list of order of operations, basically mm-hmm. for the day, like we'll start here. And whenever we finish with this one, we'll move to the next one. It could take an hour. It could take 10 minutes. It depends yeah. on the day. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's so helpful. Um, and one of the resources that I've uh, noticed too, with the students who are transitioning out of the traditional classroom, and I'd be curious your thoughts on this, but it seems to impact the confidence level of the students that I'm working with, because now that they don't feel special, you know, in the air quotes way, they don't have, they don't see the outside resources and teacher helpers as being something different from their peers. They just see it as being part of the natural space of their day and the curriculum and what they need. And they have their emotions coach or whatever they want to call it. Um, and so in terms of enabling autistic students to push themselves to, to think bigger and to try harder and to not be afraid to not experience the anxiety in ways they may have connected it with academics before it opened up the possibility for them. Um, is that something that you've also found or have you seen something different in the students you've worked with? No, I think that's another part of that huge stress relief you know, that can come along with um, doing more individualized type of instruction is Mm -hmm. there isn't that point to point comparison. It's, you know, you're really striving for personal bests and challenging yourself and looking at your interests and passions and developing those as opposed to going along with the status quo or competing with the other people, you know, maybe in your class or grade level. Yeah. And that's so great. And so for parents who are listening and thinking this is sounding like a possibility, but (laughs) what about resources and support systems? Um, Can you help educate us more about that, about what resources and support systems are available to parents who decide to homeschool their autistic child? 
Well, I think a lot of that depends on um, the type of homeschooling that mm-hmm. uh, selects. And I don't think people realize there are lots of different yes. options. Go there. for it. That's great. Go for it. Um, so, um, you know, of course there are many private options available and, and some of them are belief-based. So mm-hmm. they might um, include, um, you know, Christian-based curriculum or something like that, faith-based based curriculum. Um, and in which case, you know, the, the parent is basically um, choosing to enroll their child in a private school. In this mm-hmm. case, it's a private homeschool. Um, but that can be great for supporting, you know, some of the belief-based learning and giving parents access to that. But a lot of families don't realize that when you enroll your child in a private school, you're basically giving up a lot of access to the resources that you can get through the, the individualized education plan or IEP. Yes, through the public schools, right? Yeah, exactly. So another option, if the services and supports through the IEP are something that are still needed and that a parent feels really strongly that their child is benefiting from, um, is to look at a public charter school, homeschool option. Mm -hmm. And um, lots of those available now um, and and different areas of emphasis and focus. You know, so Mm -hmm. for example, if if a child's really showing an interest in, in STEM, um, there's, you know, many different homeschool charter options that really emphasize STEM. Or if it's the arts, there's options that really emphasize the arts. So, um, but it being a public um, charter, um, that means that the child is still entitled to and has the right to receive um, specialized academic instruction, yes. um, speech language services, occupational therapy, whatever the designated instructional services are. Well, and then the parent can also meet with the teacher of record monthly, right? That's part of the requirement. So they can, they go over the IEP, they make sure everything's working. If it's not working, they support the parent with additional resources that the state funds, right? So it's definitely a lot more hands-on in terms of state involvement, but for some families, that's what they want and need. So that's excellent. So that's, that's a great option, um, you know, if, if you're needing more direct access to support. And the, the teacher of record, you know, can also serve as a really great, um, you know, coach if there's areas that the, the parent might be struggling with teaching. They may have some ideas mm-hmm. that they can provide and, and um, help in that way. Um, so, you know, another option that is available um, is to actually become your own private school. Um, yes, that's pretty similar to enrolling in a in a um, a faith based private school situation. It does take um, applying with your state or, or locality um, and completing an application to be your own private school. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's another option that is available that that some parents um, like because they want to really have the flexibility um, to do things and to pick curriculum that um, yes. That and if I recall, I think that's state specific too, right? The state of California offers that. Um, not all states do though, but but you're right. That is absolutely a possibility. And then I think there's private homeschooling as well. Can you speak to that one as far as what resources can parents access if they decide, I want to be completely private in my homeschooling. I'm still going to send in my letter of intent to the state, you know, with the proper formatting. But beyond that, it's, it's up to me. If it is to me, yeah. it's up to me. So what it's about resources more, for them? Much more autonomous. Um, you have to be much more autonomous to, to, to do that route. Yeah. Um, oftentimes, and again, it varies from, from locale to locale, but oftentimes um, you'll be given a budget you know, to spend on whatever the resources are, but it really becomes up to the parent to select those resources and mm-hmm. speak 
versus the curriculum and, and that sort of thing for the child. So, um, you know, there's sort of a, a, a continuum um, in terms of the type of homeschooling, depending on the level of support that the family feels like they need and, and whether or not they feel like the child could benefit from having some of those services ongoing. Yeah. Well, that's really helpful that you lay them out that way, though, Patty. Thank you, because it it clarifies that that parents, yes, have access to support, especially if they remain in either that public homeschool charter format or the private homeschool format. One will require more effort on their part, but also potentially more flexibility. But either way, they're paying tax dollars to the public school system. They're still able to make use of those resources as part of their taxes that they pay. So that's a great way to outline it. Thank you. Um, is there then a specialized curriculum that you recommend for parents of autistic students or maybe even supplemental curriculum materials or homeschool resource groups they could turn to beyond, uh, you know, the teacher of record or the public school that we're talking about? Yeah, that's that's a, a great question as well. And we get asked this a lot by, you know, even the public school teachers wanting to know yeah, I um, what curriculum do I use with my students with autism? And, you know, really, there are no specific say, for example, math curriculum that have been mm-hmm. developed for students with autism. But there are some that because they're um, highly visual, they um, incorporate a lot of um, manipulatives and kinesthetic kind of learning that um, have shown to be um, really effective for individuals mm-hmm. with autism. So um, one of them that um, probably a lot of people are familiar with or have seen is Touch Math. Mm-hmm. Uh, they use touch points to represent um, uh, numerical concepts, and um, that's been shown to be a really effective method um, for instructing uh, students with autism um, and other learning disabilities as well in, mm-hmm. in math. Um, there are some great um, social skills curriculum that are available that have some evidence supporting their effectiveness. Um, mm-hmm. One specifically is called the PEERS um, social skills curriculum that was developed yes. out of UCLA. Mm-hmm. Um, and they use a combination of video modeling, role playing, and, um, you know, intentional instruction on specific skills, um, to be able to develop, um, some of the, the social skills in school age, as well as adolescent and young adult um, individuals with autism. So, um, you know, there are some specific, um, curriculum that are available out there for purchase and and that that people can get trained to implement. But, you know, really a lot of it is um, figuring out which practices or which strategies to use to be able to to get information and um, and, and help the child learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that there are um, many evidence-based strategies or practices that um, are effective for individuals with autism. Right. Um, the National Autism Clearinghouse um, for Autism Evidence and Practice um, in CAPE is an amazing resource that I recommend any parent of a child with autism um, look at to see what those practices are. Um, they also have links to some free training resources um, for anyone who's interested to receive training on um, those practices. Mm. But it's things like um, how to use a visual schedule. Um, yes how to set up a token reinforcement system or a first then um, schedule system to help right. maintain focus and motivation. Oh, that's great. We'll have to link that resource on the site. Thank you for mentioning that. Right, that's a great yeah. one. And then have you heard of, the, there's a group I heard of just the other day called spedhomeschool.org, mm-hmm. but whether or not you've heard of them, are there any other co-op or 
online homeschool social resource groups that, that you know of that parents can also refer to if they later on want to ask a group chat, hey, does, has anybody considered this or where do I find one of those? Yeah, that's really the the main one, the the, the resource that you mentioned. Um, it, you know, a lot of communities have their own um, homeschooling networks, and many of them within the homeschooling network for that community might have a special needs or a um, a, a particular group that meets. Um, you know, to to discuss and talk about um, you know children with learning disabilities or. Um, you know, sometimes specifically autism. So, you know, it's, it's really a matter of searching within your, your local community um, for uh, those kinds of groups. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's excellent. And I think one of the things I have, I might even tag onto that list if I can be so bold is uh, when, when we worked with various autistic students, the ABA therapists oftentimes would come in and help us take whatever the curriculum was and customize it. So it's not that we needed to even buy something really expensive or extraordinary. Uh, math manipulatives could have been accessible with just a bag of pinto beans from the grocery store, right? It didn't have to cost a lot of money necessarily, but the ABA therapists were actually able to come in and help us put together, like you said, the visual structures for the day and the token systems so that if for new parents just recently getting a diagnosis of autism for their child, not even sure what we're talking about, <laughs> they can bring those professionals into their home as part of oftentimes their insurance even. Uh, covered by insurance to help them sort out how to teach their child well. So I know that that's also possible. ABA professionals are usually really knowledgeable about the evidence-based practices that I mentioned earlier. A lot of the practices come from that field of applied Mm -hmm. behavior analysis. So they're a great resource. And and yeah, the um, health insurance funded um, behavioral services are available in most states now. Yeah. Um, so if a parent is interested in learning more about that, they can talk to their primary care physician or get a referral to a specialist, um, you know, within their, uh, within their healthcare system. Yeah. To find through their insurance. Yeah. That's excellent. So then, um, if we take another, like there's so many different slices we can look at when we're talking about homeschooling anybody, let alone autistic kids, but, but especially when we're thinking about the social side, how are peer modeling academic structure, social needs, and accommodations managed for homeschool autistic students differently, perhaps, than they would be in a traditional school system? Well, I I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that, you know, the social is often one of the big challenges and reasons why families are looking for alternatives, Mm -hmm. Um, partly because, you know, the social skills instruction that they get um, in school is, you know, sort of fragmented. Um, and, and partially because, you know, the natural social models, um, a lot of times in traditional, um, school, um, aren't always the most positive influence. Um, mm, yeah. We aren't the best, um, peer models or social models, um, you know, that, that we want our kids, um, you know, really learning from. So, um, one of the ways that families often meet that need or, or fill that, that, um, that social, um, kind of component for their kids is, um, you know, looking at, at their child's interests and strengths and looking for clubs or looking for, um, you know, teams that the child can become a part of that really Mm -hmm. incorporate that interest and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, giving them the opportunity to do that, whatever that, that strength area is on a regular basis and interacting with the peers, peers who are also interested in that. So you're saying outside of of an academic setting, right? Not a math class, but a a soccer or theater or something else. Yeah. Gotcha. A 
a band, um, yep. you know, music um, group, Lego um, Club Junior, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the great thing about doing that is then you're putting the child in a social situation where they have a ton in common with mm-hmm. the other kids that are there for the same thing. You know, they're there because they love soccer. They're there because they love music. They're there because they love dance or whatever the, the passion or interest is. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that shared common interest can be a foundation for some really great friendships and, mm-hmm. and peer relationships and um, you know, it can be a, a, a really nice place to be able to help um, encourage um, social skills development. And if a parent, you know, works with a child and sort of coaches them on some things like on the drive, on the way to soccer practice, yes, um, you know, that sets them up and sort of primes them for, um, you know, that, that social interaction um, in context not, you know, in this, this sort of artificial situation that, that doesn't have real life application. Yes. And I've even known ABA therapists who will go with homeschool families to those various social engagements to coach during the course of it. And they'll do it discreetly. It won't be obvious who they are or what company they work with, but, um, who will parallel with a student and be able to whisper or pull them off to the side and say, by the way, she just asked you this question what do you think you could answer her? Right. Or if we've practiced this at home already, go back to that thing that we practiced and, and try that again. And, um, I've seen that to be really effective as a way of, um, piggybacking on what the students already learning through therapy and coaching sessions in a really natural, um, you know, life circumstance, which is wonderful. Yeah, that social prompting can be really valuable. There's also a, a probably the largest body of research in terms of social skills development in youth is around peer-mediated interventions. Mm. Um, so, you know, identifying a group of supportive peers and giving them some tools and strategies for how to prompt their friend with autism, mm. you know, in a, in a natural, you know, non-threatening kind of way. And um you know, that, that there's some really, really strong empirical support for that approach also. Hmm. That is excellent. Thank you for mentioning that. So we've assumed up until now that parents listening um, to this episode have a child with autism, but what about parents who suspect they have a child with autism, but have leaned away from getting tested out of concern for labeling or maybe undermining their child's potential? What encouragement can you give them or in speaking to that decision? Well, you know, I would say um, as a, a, a parent myself, anytime that, um, you know, my child is presenting with something that is concerning to me, you know, whether it be, you know, a, a, a complaint of some sort of pain or, um, you know, not being able to fall asleep at night or, you know, whatever the issue is, um, what usually compels a parent to go seek out a diagnosis or to get some kind of expert or medical advice is that, um, you know, the, the concern has reached a point where they are really needing some outside support mm-hmm. uh, and aren't knowing what to do about it. Um, and so, you know, if, if a parent's having concerns about a child's development or social skills or, um, you know, maybe they're, they're getting really sensitive to sensory things that are going on in the environment and the parent is, is not knowing what to do, um, you know, that might be the time to go and, and seek out a diagnosis or seek out some medical input and advice on what's going on. Um, the reason to do that is really because that's going to give you more information. It's going to give 
give you more clarity. Um, it's going to give you more of a direction in terms of what to do to, to treat or to support that particular area of need. Um, you know, so it, it could be, you know, looked at as the, the next step in being able to find the right kinds of supports to address whatever the need is. Um, and, and heading, you know, in a, in a direction, um, based on a clear diagnosis can be a lot easier than continuing to try to, you know, just problem solve on your own. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Um, so I have four children and some of them have some special learning needs and it's been interesting to be in communities of parents who, you know, we can collaborate together over those special needs and discuss solutions and possibilities. And over time, as I've gotten to know these parents, many of us have admitted to having this initial mental roadblock of Mm -hmm. maybe not wanting to get diagnosed because we're worried about a label or um, not raising the bar high enough because we know our child's high functioning or capable of more. And we don't want them to do less because they, they have an excuse, right? There's oftentimes that Mm -hmm. phrase of using a crutch, but I think what we've come to find over time in our conversations, the more we're educated as parents in these areas of need is, you know, if, if my child had a physical need, such as crooked teeth, assuming it's affordable for me to get braces for the child, I wouldn't have any issue taking them to the orthodontist to get braces. But if my child, you know, reads crookedly, right? If it's dyslexia, Mm -hmm. why wouldn't I get the same sort of support? Why would I insist that my child just figure it out and learn to adjust with the real world without the necessary supports, uh, for him or her? So, um, it had, it is hard for parents to, to get to the point where, like you said, you, you're going to go get a diagnosis once you realize you need the help. And more importantly, your child needs the help, but, uh, it, it does sometimes take time to get to that point. And, and, um, yeah, hopefully parents are able to get there sooner than some than others that I've known. Cause it seems like, isn't there, I think I want to say there's been research that's come out about, um, early diagnosis mm-hmm. being important. Can you speak to more of that piece as well? Yeah. Well, you know, we've gotten to the point now with, uh, with our diagnostic capabilities where, um, we can diagnose, um, you know, autism and identify that it might be a a factor in a child's development pretty early on, you know, sometimes in cases as early as 18 months. Oh, wow. At which point then, um, certain, um, therapies and and services can be put in place, um, once that diagnosis is um, identified. Um, and, the research really strongly supports that that early identification, early access to some of mm-hmm. those treatments and approaches um, has a lifelong um, significant implications for a child who receives it. Um, you know, it's sort of thinking like the, the, the longer you wait to get the wisdom teeth pulled, if that's whatever the, the situation is, the, the more difficult it's going to be by the time you go in to have that treatment done. Um, you know, the earlier that we can intervene when we, when we see characteristics of autism, um, the better the outcomes um, tend to be. Yeah. And for parents who want to pursue getting testing done, is the best place to start their pediatrician or do you recommend something different? Um, yeah, the pediatrician is a great place to start. Um, but parents do have to be, um, you know, pretty clear in their descriptions of what they're concerned about mm-hmm. and oftentimes have to advocate that they be sent on to a specialist. Um, mm. You know, a lot of pediatricians, even though it's it's a best practice for them to, to listen to the families and look at those developmental milestones, a lot of them take a more conservative approach and maybe, you know, pull the 
let's wait and see in six more months if this is still a problem, right. you know, kind of a, a approach to it. Um, so, you know, it, you have to be, you have to, you know, really be an advocate to be able to get that referral onto a specialist, which, um, you know, one of the best uh, specialists that a person can go and see if they have any concerns about autism is a developmental behavioral pediatrician, a okay. DBT specialist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes a psychologist, a neurologist, or a psychiatrist um, could be the next referral that's made. But those DVPs, um, that this is what they specialize in. You know, mm-hmm. they, they really understand child development and and what developmental differences look like, and can be um, a, a great referral to ask for if there's any concerns. Um, there's also some resources that are available to help parents, you know, voice their concerns and advocate, um, you know, on behalf of their child. Um, for example, the Center for Disease Control has a, um, a, a resource called Learn the Signs, Act Early. Um, and they have developmental monitoring tools on their website um, and even an app that you can download on your phone where you track your child's development. And, um, you know, it sort of highlights where there may be some red flags or concerns. And so sometimes parents feel like taking that checklist or taking that app to the doctor saying, here are the areas that I'm concerned about. And here's why that that can, you know, add to to the story a little bit and possibly help the, the physician make that referral. Yeah, that's an excellent resource. The advocation piece, you're right, is hard. There have been times for some of my children, because they are high functioning, that I have to persuade the pediatricians pretty significantly to give it a shot, not because they don't want to help, but because they see a high functioning child and the spectrum, especially for autism, you know, for parents with kids with autism is so large and diverse that um, no two autistic kids will necessarily look alike, which makes it difficult for them to know when to forward on to a specialist and not. So I agree with you that parents sort of have to get their game face on sometimes, not that it's uh, an antagonistic relationship with a pediatrician at all, but just that if the pediatrician says no, then then we just keep knocking on doors until yeah. we get the the answer solved or the child miraculously outgrows whatever it was that was concerning us. But most of the time, we're glad we knocked on those doors. So thank you for recommending those resources to help parents flag it. Um, I, I meant to ask you this Go ahead, Patty. What was, I was that? Say, one other resource that families need to know about is if their child's over the age of three, they could also go to their school district and ask for an assessment. Yes. Um, the school wouldn't diagnose autism, but they could identify whether or not the child met the criteria to receive um, specialized academic instruction or special education as a result of the characteristics of autism. So, um, you know, there's a couple different avenues, but um, pediatrician and or school district are, are probably the most accessible. Right. And if parents go through the school district too, for those who are maybe more financially constrained, because the tests can be quite expensive, that's a free or even cheap option to do that through the school. Is that right? Free to the family. Absolutely. Yeah. That's great to know. So I meant to ask you this question earlier, Patty, I apologize that I didn't, but um, what if a parent thinks maybe they have a, an autistic child, they aren't quite sure um, because it is hard to know, you know, when we, you pull up an article online, there is not a singular diagnosis for an autistic child. What are areas of concern or yellow flags that parents should look for when they're trying to figure out, is this what I'm maybe dealing with at home or maybe it's something else? So the two core areas of impact or sort of the two diagnostic areas that are looked at are differences in social communication and then differences in, um, restricted and repetitive patterns of behavior. Mm. So some of the things that, you know, they might see um, are 
um, unusual eye contact, um, either fleeting eye contact or avoiding eye contact. Um, sometimes it's um, a difference in the, the way that they use or understand language. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of children with autism are very literal in their interpretation of language and miss a lot of the nonverbal social cues. Um, like maybe they don't understand, why is mom making that face at me? Um, you know, they might see that you're making a face, but not really interpret what that face means. Yes. Um, they might not be able to follow things like gestures. So if you point, you know, at something across the room and say, it's over there, they might not understand or really know how to track that gesture. Mm-hmm. Um, there can be some, you know, difficulty with social interaction with same age peers. Maybe, um, you know, they, they aren't flexible in their play and that starts to become a challenge or an issue, um, wanting to do things one way with the toys and not really being flexible, um, in terms of, of using the toy in a variety of different ways, not being willing to let a peer, um, you know, sort of lead the play or vary the play mm-hmm. at all. Um, yeah. So that's some of that rigidity that that tends to be problematic. And then a lot of families will notice some of those sensory differences, um, you know, uh, hyper responsive to sounds, you know, covering their ears or being really afraid or scared of certain circumstances or, or noises. Um, maybe there's an adverse reaction to certain textures and food and clothing. Um, those are some of the, the more common kinds of things that that one might see. But you know, you said earlier, you've seen one child with autism, you've seen one child with autism. Yeah. No two kids are exactly alike and their symptoms are not going to present exactly the same. Um, you know, and, and it can, they can be really subtle. Um, a child might develop language or even be really precocious with their language um, and, and be on the spectrum, whereas another child may um, remain um, nonverbal or um, develop some, um, you know, sort of scripted language that they mm-hmm. use. So, um, but any of, any of those sort of red flags of a parent's noticing um, that, that tend to, to be, um, persistent, um, across settings and across time, um, would be concerns that, that we'd want to have looked at. I think that's a really helpful way to distill it. Thank you. That, that gave some nice core concepts, Patty. That was great. So if we go back to, you know, the topic that we began with homeschooling autistic children, do you have any final thoughts for our friend listening today who might be new to the idea of homeschooling or, or specifically homeschooling an autistic child? So I would say, you know, don't, don't doubt yourself. I mean, there's a certain level of, you know, self-doubt that comes along with making a big decision like this, but, Mm -hmm. but if you're strongly considering it, you know, I'm sure there's a a valid reason for it. And, um, you know, you were your child's first teacher and, um, will continue to be their, um, consistent teacher throughout their life. So, um, you know, it's, it's definitely doable if, um, if you're feeling like it's the right thing to do, um, connect with other families, um, you know, make use of some of those resources, um, that we mentioned on, on today's um, podcast, but also, um, that we can make available to you afterwards. Um, and just, you know, start to educate yourself about what the resources are. And, and remember that there are a lot of supports out there, um, depending on the type of homeschooling circumstance that, that you decide on. Um, even some cooperative kinds of situations with other families who are doing it, that, that can be really helpful to get you started. So um, I would say just spend some time learning about it, talking to other families about it. And, um, you know, you'll know it's the right decision at the right time. 
I think that's excellent. And special needs can feel isolating at times for parents, especially when they get the diagnosis in the early days, but it really doesn't have to be. Um, There's such a strong community in all these different learning pockets with parents eager to help and share and um, express what they've learned so someone else doesn't have to relearn it the hard way. So I echo what you're saying, Patty, and appreciate you encouraging parents to reach out for community and to not feel like they have to go it alone. So that's great. So thank you so much, Patty, um, again, for making time to share your perspectives and experiences with us today. I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to host you as an expert on the show. Well, thank you for having me. And um, I look forward to hearing some of the other topics that you're going to be sharing in the coming weeks. Thank you very much. And thank you, especially friend for joining us today. I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks for joining Ann Crossman on our podcast, helping you homeschool confidently with help from the experts. You can do this and we are here to help. We invite you to follow us on social media and subscribe to our podcast so you stay up to date on the latest resources. See you next time.